Okay, welcome back. This is Dr. Ali Akhtar, episode one of Women for Workers' Rights in the Asia Pacific Region. When we talk about women for workers' rights in the Asia Pacific Region, what are we talking about? We're talking about the history of women uh, reformers and political activists and politicians and intellectuals and professors who have partnered with workers' movements to advocate for uh, an improvement of working conditions in the rapidly industrializing nations of the Asia-Pacific region. Now, what is the Asia-Pacific region? Uh, typically, that is a reference to Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. So Southeast Asian countries include um, Vietnam, the Philippines, um, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, and Northeast Asian countries and regions include uh, South Korea, Japan, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. And both regions are central to the ongoing history of global trade because of the block that Southeast Asia forms in the name of what's called ASEAN. Now, ASEAN is the Association for Southeast Asian Nations. It's a kind of trade block that negotiates on behalf of Southeast Asian nations for uh, trade agreements with regions like the European Union, um, the United States. When the British uh, signed their Brexit agreement and withdrew from the European Union, um, the British, amongst other things, decided that they would now be able to negotiate directly with ASEAN without having to go through uh, the European Union. So Southeast Asia is a very central player in global trade, and um, women and women form a large segment of the labor force in Southeast Asia. And historically and today, uh, women's movements, um, individual women reformers, have begun to play, have historically and continue to play a prominent role in uh, advocating for the improvement of wor women's working conditions, working conditions generally, and women's working conditions in particular. And this includes anything from you know workplace safety um, to uh, wage gaps, workplace discrimination. And the goal of all this is not only what we might assume to be a question of kind of ethics, uh, about what is good or what is morally correct or incorrect about um, how workers can uh, complete their jobs. But a, a, as much or a bigger question at stake is how can these countries um, develop and industrialize and grow their economies in a much more efficient manner uh, through the partnership of women's movements and workers' movements uh, as they help encourage women's upward social mobility uh, women's the growth of women's labor participation rate uh, in a way that governments hope will help grow their economies. So there's a long history here that I'll be going through in this podcast of women and women's movements that have partnered with workers' movements, um, that have partnered with labor unions, um, that have partnered with government institutions to try to uh, improve workers' working conditions generally and uh, to improve women's working conditions uh, in particular. What, the reason this is so critical in countries like Japan and South Korea is because of what uh, the government identifies as a central economic and social issue, which is the uh, aging population and declining birth rate. And, and, and against the backdrop of a lack of immigration 
and the inability of Japan to kind of grow its workforce uh, through immigration, uh, women, women's labor participation becomes a very central uh, dimension of Japan overcoming repeated recessions. And so this is where um, the question of hiring women for high-wage jobs as opposed to low-wage jobs and finding ways for women to be able to continue holding on to long-term employment contracts while having access to parental leaves in order to also have children has now become a central political question. And very frequently you see uh, women professors and uh, women who are members of labor unions, professors like Dr. Ueno Chizuko in Japan from the University of Tokyo, who play a prominent role in offering the public and offering government officials and other academics a window into the history and the ongoing dimensions of how women's movements have and can continue to partner with workers' movements to help improve uh, working conditions um, for low-wage and high-wage jobs in a way that can help the economy grow and in a way that can help industries, the government, uh, private and public industries, and workers and families uh, be able to together take part in this process of growing the economy. One of the reasons why Westerners, you know, Americans, Canadians, French, and the British are very interested in this history is because it offers a lot of lessons for um, recessions and changing social conditions in America. One prominent example of that is, um, you know, truck drivers in the United States who lose their jobs when it comes to automation or who are worried about losing their jobs in the context of automation and the rise of autonomous vehicles, Tesla trucks. Uh, as those jobs become automated, there has been historically a question of um, how sustainable is that for the economy for a large segment of the economy to just kind of drop out of the workforce um, and without being able to retrain for a new position. So this is where you get into questions of hiring, uh, age discrimination, gender discrimination when it comes to hiring in new industries. And Asian countries have been talking about this in, with a level of sophistication that has piqued the interest of a lot of American, uh, British, French, uh, Canadian policymakers. Now, when it comes to uh, women, the history of women advocates for um, workers, I can't open my iPad. When it comes to the history of women advocates for workers' rights, one thing that's worth noting from an academic perspective is that um, this is a major part of the history of women's movements and even the history of uh, global feminist movements. One of the reasons why um, women advocates for workers' rights um, do not get as much attention as they ought to is because uh, it seems that certain certain aspects of women's movements histories I think are taught more than others. So for example, we know all around the world about uh, the women's suffrage movements. Women's suffrage movements are a central part of American and global women's movements and uh, in America, in the context of the history of feminist movements, uh, the advocacy by women uh, to have more women participate in government, in Congress, in the European parliaments, uh, being able to vote, this is very much a kind of a central, uh, well-known dimension of 
the history of women's movements, the history of movements that identify themselves as feminist movements. In, uh, in another side of that is the history of women's movements and women activists, both in the United States and around the world, that have partnered with um, workers' movements to advocate for uh, the improvement of women's lives, not only in the context of um, increasing political participation in order to enact laws against things like violence against women, but also women, women activists seeking uh, political representation in order to advocate for um, women to also have a say when workers get together and negotiate on behalf of workers um, to their employers and with the government to enact labor laws about things like workplace safety and whatnot. So women's movements in, uh, and, and specifically the subset of women's movements that deals with women who work on behalf of workers' rights offers this really interesting window into how uh, really various communities of women in Asia have grappled with some of the problems that their uh, countries have faced as their economies grew and as um, communities of families and villages and smaller towns began to move to big cities and countries faced certain kinds of growing pains, uh, women's movements have played a central role and continue to play a central role in advocating on behalf of workers generally and women specifically um, to enact and and move along with the kind of debates that are central to uh, even American uh, labor history. And again, things about things like workplace safety, um, age discrimination, whether it's sustainable for the economy for you know everyone to suddenly lose their jobs at the age of 50 or 60 or 65. Um, again, these are frequently um, discussed in the context of ethics, whether this is good or bad um, for the life of that particular worker. But throughout the world, and especially in Asia, these issues are debated in the context of um, you know what is an economically sustainable model for growth. Now, in upcoming podcasts, I'm going to be talking about uh, one by one Southeast Asian countries and Northeast Asian countries and how each country's culture and variety of cultures has played a central role in the way that um, women's movements, women's organizations have partnered with uh, workers' movements and the government to try to develop solutions that can help grow their economies. Um, and I'll be looking at Malaysia and Singapore in, in the upcoming podcasts. Now, to, give, to offer some examples of how industrializing nations run into certain kinds of growing pains uh, that, develop, that create the context for these debates about workers' rights to come up, um, I want to look briefly at the history of Malaysia and Singapore more broadly, which I'll be talking about again in a few um, later podcasts. So how did Malaysia and Singapore come to have such an interesting shared um, overlapping history of economic development since the 1960s? The reason Malaysia and Singapore are so closely connected is, number one, the fact that their geography is um, a shared geography. For about 144 years, uh, Singapore was under British rule until about 1963. And in 1963, Malaysia 
and several other British colonies, uh, northern Borneo, Sarawak, these are islands in Southeast Asia, and Singapore joined together as a kind of federation. Uh, that federation only lasted about two years, and in 1965, um, Singapore and Malaysia more or less seceded from one another, a kind of partition, or uh, Singapore seceded from Malaysia. I mean, they were only together for two years. And uh, out of that, out of that uh, secession came uh, the prominence of two major political parties. On the Malaysian side, you have the United Malays, United Malays National Organization. Malay, that's the Pertubuhan Kebangsaan Melayu Persatu. And on the Singaporean side, you have the People's Action Party. The People's Action Party, both of those parties, the United Malays National Organization and the People's Action Party, are um, today they remain prominent parties in Malaysia and Singapore, respectively. And Singapore's People's Action Party um, has some sort of rivalry with another party called the Workers' Party. The fact that there is something called the Workers' Party in Singapore tells you something about the history of workers' movements and how they interface with the government when trying to enact uh, labor laws and uh, laws that can uh, regulate industries and employers. Um, Malaysia and Singapore, under especially since in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, under the governance of um, two of the most prominent leaders of their countries, Mahathir Mohamed and Lee Kuan Yew, underwent a really rapid uh, process of industrialization and economic development where Malaysia and Singapore saw the development of a variety of industries and in Singapore that includes the airline industry, Singaporean Airlines was developed a few decades ago under the leadership of Lee Kuan Yew and in Malaysia you began to see uh, large swaths of people who lived in villages and farms begin to move to the cities in order to participate in factories that were owned by the Japanese and American companies and then also Malaysian companies as part of a larger push by the Malaysian government to have the people of Malaysia um, experience a kind of upward social mobility to participate in the growth of industries, to, do, to grow their exports, to grow the GDP, grow the economy, have exports leave the country in large amounts, people come, um, money coming in. And again, there were certain growing pains in this process where the transition of those communities that were not already urbanized in Malaysia, um, rural communities and farming communities, there, was a, there, was, there were growing pains when it came to uh, the moving from a life of farming to a life of factory work. This is a known problem in uh, the 1800s in uh, the British context where there were questions of workplace safety, um, older elderly people who were laid off of their jobs not being able to pay for you know daily expenses that can become a public health issue if people cannot afford medication and health care and this is where in in uh, places like Malaysia you know contexts were created out of this for for people to debate things like um, wage gaps uh, to give one example here when in certain rural communities in Malaysia, and I'll talk more about the research on this in a couple of podcasts, but in certain rural communities in, in Malaysia, uh, there is an expectation for some women and daughters in families to uh, 
to help with the process of um, caregiving for elderly parents. So the problem that the problem that creates when it comes to wages is that many of those women who had now moved to the cities still had a kind of cultural expectation to help care for their elderly parents, and uh, so that the so that means that the wages that they received in the factories had to be used to pay for themselves, and also some of it would be sent back to their families. Now there was a kind of competing cultural dimension uh, to all of this where. There's an under, there was an understanding in certain communities that men were the breadwinners in their families. And so the, so this is where if men were to begin to, if you're in a Japanese factory or an American factory or in a Malaysian factory, there's a context here to start discussing wage gaps. If one were to, if one were to begin to see that men were receiving higher wages than women despite a similar level of training or education, when, when under the assumption that men are breadwinners, when there's this kind of competing reality um, that women also have to use some of their wages to care for their families, uh, to their for their elderly parents. So this this kind of competing um, cultural expectations, uh, these ideas of there are these competing um, uh, forces when it comes to the cultural underpinnings of considering offering men higher wages than women. Under the under one assumption that men are the breadwinners for their families, women are not. Therefore, men might be paid higher wages. Um, once someone comes to realize that uh, women also have these kind of cultural expectations to help provide for their parents, uh, then there's a context created for women for women advocates or women reformers to begin to now negotiate with their employers or with the government to start talking about fair wages, equal wages. And the way to implement this um, change in the law is either to actually have employers pay women um, and men the same wages when they are performing the same tasks and have the same kind of skill set, but also to make sure that women at the educational level are not being left behind when it comes to developing the skills and the education needed to get those high wage jobs. While this in America is often discussed as an ethical issue, in Asia, again, as I mentioned, it's frequently discussed as um, an economic and political uh, impediment to economic growth. So how does it work that uh, wage gaps can be an impediment to economic growth? If you look at the case of Japan, Dr. Uh, Ueno Chizuko at the University of Tokyo points out that if... Um, if uh, a variety of women are marrying um, high-salary executives, there's a there's a kind of historical reality that most women are not going to be marrying high well, high wage, um, high-salary executives. Most will be marrying men who have lower salaries and lower wages. And in order to kind of allow them allow the possibility of having children and living a life in the expensive city of Tokyo, where many of the jobs are. Women will also have to get uh, jobs, but there's a problem there where if the jobs that women get are constantly lower wage jobs, or if women or if certain jobs are gendered as female, like office work, uh, clerical work, teaching work, and they are lower wage jobs, and then women are forced into those positions because despite their skill set, they can't get the higher wage jobs, then according to professors like Professor Shizuko Ueno, 
this situation can um, help sustain uh, a kind of snowball effect where there's a growing we uh, wealth inequality between the wealthiest Japanese and a much larger community of middle class and uh, lower income, two income households uh, that are competing with these one income executive households. And more than an ethical issue, this is pointed out by professors in Japan as being a kind of economic problem um, because if countries like Japan and all around the world are growing economically, the GDP is expanding, um, exports are going great, money's coming in, but if that money's only going to a small group at the top, um, and if people in the middle class and lower lower classes are you know, falling into poverty, then you can end up with things like public health problems where you know, a, large sections of the population in South Korea begin to live in these basement apartments. The movie Parasite deals with that. Um, people in the Philippines can begin to you know, move to the slum, the project housing and slums and shanty towns on the outskirts of Manila, uh, where, where one might begin to find um, you know, public health crises related to um, whether sanitation, um, uh, neonatal care for new babies, drug problems, op opioid crises. And again, understanding how this works in places like Japan and Malaysia uh, offer uh, lessons for the United States that similarly has this kind of emerging debate about what happens when a country continues to expand economically, but then there's this growing uh, wealth gap between the wealthiest in the country and the least wealthy, some of whom, let's say, um, I won't say, I can't think of, well, I was going to point out one in particular, but let's just say whatever industry a person is in, if they fall, begin to fall into poverty, um, how that can become a public health crisis and even civil strife might emerge in certain countries. So the outcome of all this is that um, the, the uh, in the case of Malaysia, uh, Malaysia offers a, an interesting example of how um, how when a country does become industrialized, people begin to move from the villages to the cities in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s to work in these factories. Um, and women and men within a single family have uh, you know dual obligations: men to their men to their wives and children, women to their um, to their parents. How context can be created, uh, were created historically to begin talking about um, wage gaps between men and women in a very serious way. Um, and uh, this is where you begin to see historically in places like Malaysia that women reformers, women advocates, intellectuals, um, women workers begin to now work through things like labor unions or women organizations or the government to begin to now advocate for workers' rights generally um, and maybe women's women's rights in particular. So maybe you know, increasing wages generally for a government-owned industry, and then making sure for women in particular that the increase in wages also applies to women. In the case of um, Singapore, you know, as you progress further in history, and I'm just introducing some examples that I'll look at more closely in a couple of episodes. In the case of Singapore, they, the Singapore likewise developed very rapidly in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And Lee Kuan Yew, um, uh, decided to create a variety of industries that include the airline industry. Now in the airline industry, the way it developed, um, a context again was created 
for uh, women's movements and women reformers and women advocates to partner with uh, workers' movements to talk about things like age discrimination. Um, Lee Kuan Yew talks about this in, uh, when in a lot of documentaries and interviews. He points out that, um, that on the one hand, Singapore wanted to create its own in airline industry, and they did so very successfully. Um, but on the other hand, there were certain kind of problems that came up that the government and the industry had to overcome. One example was um, the hiring of women as the flight crew. The issue was that frequently by the age of 30, 35, or 40, or when they were a bit older, um, there was a kind of turnaround where they would be let go and uh, younger women would be hired. The reason young women were hired for those jobs was because women in the Singaporean airline industry played a kind of uh, dual role. On one level, they were uh, trained in all of what flight crew are trained in, um, safety of the passengers, the comfort of the passengers, communicating vital information from the cabin, from the uh, cockpit to the cabin, uh, from the pilot to the passengers. But they also play a very kind of cultural diplomatic role. Singaporean Airlines being an international airline, um, frequently its passengers were Americans, British, French, and there was an opportunity through the airline to showcase how successfully Singapore was developing and how much Singapore in the 1980s and 90s was open for business and in private international investment. And um, Singaporean, the Singaporean flight attendants um, frequently were trained in Singaporean hospitality, how to serve, how to speak to the passengers, uh, how to talk about Singapore if asked about it, how to dress. There were particular types of clothing that they wore as flight attendants. And um, the flight attendants came to be known in a lot of the advertising campaigns as the the Singapore girls, the Singapore I think it's the Singaporean girl or the Singapore girl, and the image of the Singapore girl was supposed to be a kind of metaphor or um, window into what Singapore was. It was very much a kind of modern Western industrialized country, but it was all, it also had a bit of the Eastern hospitality. There was this idea of the kind of West East um, synthesis hybridity, and part of that was the youth of Singapore. It's a new country and it's open for business. And um, so this was where, as Singaporean flight attendants and cabin crew got to be older, if, when, uh, when they were let go of their jobs and new Singaporean flight attendants were hired, this is where you can see how a context is clearly created here for women reformers, advocates, um, to partner with workers' movements to begin to talk about things like age discrimination, to ask, is age discrimination a problem across industries and in the airline industry in particular? If it is a problem, uh, why does it, why is it a problem? Is it an ethical problem or is it an economic problem? Let's say it's let's say it's not just an ethical problem. Let's take the ethics aside. What kinds of economic? Why is it economic? Why is it economically sustainable to um, let the a workforce go when they hit the age of thirty or forty? This is where women's movements and women reformers began to now interface with government officials, industry officials, to to argue that um, that economies can grow more efficiently, industries can develop better, uh, save costs on retraining people, if um, people are kind of kept in their workplace longer, and there's not such a fast turnaround, um, and if older people can be hired as well. So that they can be, uh, so that they can help 
produce um, goods and services that help the economy grow so that elderly people are not um, um, subsiding on their earlier savings or whatever their investments they've made or uh, government subsidies. So this is where, again, in, in the Malaysian case of, of wage gaps and, and uh, wages and livable wages, um, in the Singaporean case of age discrimination, uh, the way that these countries began to industrialize and modernize offered a lot of context and space for, um, for women reformers and women's movements to partner with workers' movements as an interface with the government and employers and labor unions uh, to bring about a lot of changes in labor laws and changes in you know, uh, the, regu the government regulation of industries that were part of a larger conversation about how to grow the economy in a way that um, creates a kind of sustainable improvements in public health, in public services, um, in mental health, uh, in uh, the health of the family, um, and in a way that can help um, countries also grow their population, particularly in cases like Japan and South Korea, where there is a continuing um, question of how governments can combat the decline of, of the population and the aging of the population where there is not uh, enough uh, there are not enough resources for elderly care particularly as these countries don't have major uh, immigration so Malaysia and Singapore I'll talk more about in a few episodes but they offer a really interesting window into how parties like the United Malays National Organization the Singaporean People's Action Party, the Singaporean Workers' Party, uh, interfaced with women reformers, women's movements, workers' uh, workers' movements to bring about a lot of legislation and labor changes that uh, these organizations came to believe would be beneficial for their economy, beneficial for society, in ways that today uh, a lot of American and British and French um, industries, policymakers, historians are now studying as Western countries begin to now enter a new phase of, um, of kick-starting new industries and running into kind of new growing pains. And again, the example that I mentioned in America is the automation of so many jobs, particularly with uh, autonomous vehicles, truck driver jobs, um, people who worked in call centers, uh, people who have lost their jobs in um, all the kind of manufacturing industries decades ago. And more than just history, uh, this whole topic of women for workers' rights, the history of women advocates for workers' rights in Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, all of this is part of the continuing um, cultural and political landscape of Asia. Uh, one, one of the organizations that comes up frequently in the Malaysian news is the National Union of Transport Equipment and Allied Workers. Now, this is a labor union. So labor unions, of course, are a central part of this history. And um, this particular labor union is in the process of trying to now increase its representation of women um, in its leadership in recognition of the fact that so much of the workforce in Malaysia um, includes women. And so this is where, again, you can see that today it's an ongoing conversation about how women's movements and um, workers' movements begin to now partner um, in the implementation of changes in labor laws and um, on behalf of workers in general, but also on behalf of 
women in particular. Now, one thing I want to talk about before I close up this episode is the question of feminism. Is feminism the same as women's movements? Now, this is an interesting topic that comes up a lot in the research amongst anthropologists, historians, sociologists, because the word feminism was thorny in Asian history, and many women's movements tried to avoid it. I want to. I'd like to take a look at um, Professor Mina Rose's um, Professor Mina Rose's work that gets into this question: why the term feminism was contested in uh, Asian the history of Asian women's movements, and why women's movements often free, uh, would turn to, to alternative terminologies to begin to advocate for things that were central to Western feminist movements. Um, things like universal suffrage, uh, increasing women's participation in government uh, in order to um, help women workers uh, and also to change laws, things around laws around um, violence against women. Why wouldn't Asian women's movements just adopt the term feminism? The reason for that, uh, Professor Mina Roses, who is a professor at um, the University of New South Wales, in Sydney, uh, what she says in a book that she has edited called Women's Movements in Asia, Feminisms and Transnational Activism. She's edited this with Dr. Louise Edwards. Dr. Louise Edwards is um, a professor at uh, of Modern China Studies at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Mina Roses is Associate Professor in the School of History and Philosophy at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Now, in Professor Rosas' article called Asian Feminism's Women's Movements from the Asian Perspective, um, she writes the following. Is there such a thing as Asian feminisms? For large parts of the 20th century, Asian women activists disliked the word feminism because it was associated with Western feminism that was caricatured as aggressively individualistic, anti-male, anti-children, and therefore anti-family. Quote, Western feminism was immediately branded as alien and thus inapplicable to the Asian context. Opinion leaders and political rulers found it convenient to homogenize a putatively unique, quote, Asian experience for nationalist and sometimes anti-colonialist projects that denied Asian women's experience of patriarchy. All right. That means, what does that mean? The professor here is pointing out that, um, Political leaders and political reformers throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s throughout Asia were frequently emerging from semi-colonial contexts, like in Singapore, emerging from British colonial contexts, where political reformers in Singapore and elsewhere wanted to adopt what they saw as the best of Western culture, things like you know factory industrialization, but also uh, leave aside things that they did not want. So in places like um, Singapore, there was an emphasis on preserving uh, Chinese Confucian values oriented around uh, the relationship of husbands with their wives and children with their parents and the kinds of respect and caregiving uh, that was part of all of that. And what, what women's movements found at the time in places like Singapore was that many political reformers would, in, in rejecting Western culture generally, would basically throw out... Um, uh, and, th and rejecting feminism, Western feminism, 
in particular, that many political leaders were throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And the baby here is um, those aspects of Western feminism that offered some value to uh, for the Singaporean and Asian agenda, political agenda of advancing um, the nation, women's upward social mobility, increasing women's participation in the workforce. That's the baby that was being thrown out with the bathwater, the bathwater being um, uh, Western feminism broadly as a kind of component of Western culture. So Asian, Asian political, uh, Asia, many Asian women's movements began to now um, rebrand a lot of these shared agenda items like women's participation in the workforce for the sake of their the advancement of their families and their children and the nation they began to make sure that when those when those topics aligned with western feminism uh, many women's movements and women reformers in asia made sure not to um, allow these topics to become subsumed under the label of feminism so there was an acknowledgement that these ide ideas were not there was a recognition amongst women reformers that these ideas of women's participation in government, um, the advocate, the uh, women's women's health, um, the health of mothers, neonatal care, uh, workplace uh, safety for women, there was a clear understanding that these things did not emerge uh, from magic out of Western culture. That these were things that emerged in the context of women, um, women's histories, women's uh, participation in modern industrial contexts these are these are older these are very old questions for the past you know thousand two thousand years uh, but there was an acknowledge there was a recognition amongst women reformers that these items were also very central to western feminist movements and um, there was a danger in making these uh, priorities in asia look like they were borrowed um, from western feminist movements and so the outcome of all that was that um, women's movements and individual feminist, uh, individual women's movements leaders frequently avoided the term feminism altogether so that they could do a, so they could, so that they could more successfully interface with the government and interface with um, workers' movements and uh, legislators to begin to advocate for labor laws and, and political changes. So, one of the other outcomes of all this is that. Uh, despite avoiding the term feminism, women's movements throughout Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia still partnered with self-identified feminist movements in the United States um, and in the United Kingdom and France to develop shared strategies for dealing with a lot of shared uh, issues, including increasing women's representation in government, um, helping uh, resolve questions of workplace safety in factories, especially factories with a lot of moving parts, um, enacting laws that would fight against uh, violence against women. And um, so in the next few episodes, I'll be getting into the story of Malaysia and Singapore in particular, and I'll be continuing and making my way all around Southeast Asia into Northeast Asia as I tell the story of women who have historically advocated for and continue to advocate for workers' rights throughout the Asia-Pacific region. Thanks for joining.